These are the chronicles of the journey we take together. The journey of Steamheart, and one we invite you to take with us through Through the the wind wind door. launch day the oh next god day. this is gonna take a while yes it is gonna take a while but it's okay because it's all juicy stuff and we begin in the chapter and also as a part of our conversation with raven who all of a sudden has this aura that of mangy fucker i saw what he said on the discord <laughs> yeah yeah fair enough as being voiced as being voiced by Alex as his... Wait, is Raven an avatar? Yeah, Raven is an avatar of Alex. Sorry, I was getting confused a little bit there. Um, no, no, no. Alex is the avatar of Raven. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we want to be honest about all of this, and he himself mentioned this when he was discussing our previous episode, almost all of the characters are representations of a certain aspect of him not just the actors that voice them but being that alex voices so many of the characters over the course of new century then he ends up putting a lot more into them than simply the way that he has written them on the page Mm -hmm. as far as raven is concerned who is another person whose backstory we don't know at this point and will not learn until later. Now that we are seeing him not in writing mode specifically, I mean, he mentions that he is writing something, but that he's not going to publish it. We get a bit of a mystery in terms of what is driving him aside from the desire to chronicle this journey that he's taking part in. He has unspoken trepidation regarding the journey ahead in the subtext of his words as he is talking about his distaste for the way the Smithsonian is more concerned with art than I guess it is with people. And we'll get Mm. a little bit more into that in a second because I did a little bit of research into the paintings that he refers to he has this desire to drown his agitation in alcohol leading to one of the few moments thomas has gotten truly angry so at this point i'm i'm moving from this moment in the smithsonian to the confrontation that we bear Mm -hmm. witness to in the tavern this sets the stage for future conflict as raven angrily agrees for the moment to stop his drinking But we see off to one side, James is now made judge and jury for any future inebriation on the journalist's part. Mm. So Raven turning out drunk and away from his place of duty can seem a touch abrupt when not so long ago we seemingly see him 
you know, actively doing his job. He's in the middle of his duties at the start of the chapter. For all his, like, biting judgment, what he's narrating reads like a perfectly acceptable article or a written entry from the journalist. It's true that it may be too openly condemning of part of Washington's historical and artistic institutions and be read as potentially inflammatory as a result, but we've seen Raven be able to stand by his words before. You know, it's really only at the point we hear him say that he will not be publishing any of what he's just written that we suspect that something may be up. It's not like what we've seen of him so far has implied that he's uncomfortable speaking his true thoughts. This act of self-restraint is an early admission and sign of reservations of, on his part. Oh dear, not reservations in relation to Native Americans. Uh-oh. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> Sorry. That, that word choice. Yep, okay. Um, Side note, both Toby and I here tend to use the term Native Americans when referring to the indigenous peoples that occupied North America. It's what I'm used to, because I was taught long ago that using the term Indians was pejorative, or at the very least confusing, now that the U.S. has a much larger population of people that immigrated from the country, India. I like the term First Nations better, which is the overarching official name used in Canada for their indigenous peoples, but it comes less naturally. Having said all that, I will link in show notes a video that shows, when asked, many of that culture prefer to be called American Indian, if not by the old tribal names themselves. The video explains why, and also why the term Native American is not as widely preferred. For now, this is me merely drawing attention to the fact that it's something I'm personally working on, and have a ways to go before I retrain my brain. Here he is, a Native American man who speaks truth where he can and offers a voice of contention against hypocrisy in those acting within the political institutions running this country. He's observing one example of this government prizing paintings, which he describes of scraps of parchment, I believe, these paintings being embodiments of America's past over and above the lives of an entire population's worth of the native people of this land. And even after seeing this, thinking on this, and being sickened by this, he is about to set off on a journey where he has been selected as an agent and representative of a government-sanctioned mission to that same institution that he resents for its sins and failures against his people. He is between a rock and a hard place, so the bird drinks, and I can hardly blame him. Quick aside, after that lengthy reflection, Thomas using this human reaction from Raven as evidence for his mistrust and misgivings, it, it's fuel for a fire that is always within Thomas of just misapprehension mm. of people and he brings in another member of the team to act as judge judy and executioner it's just more sign of thomas being a dangerous presence that's tangled up in the steam heart project he has baked in multiple sources of apprehension and uneasy points of distrust into the foundations of this team and its mission i can't help but think that in this respect, Thomas's motivations to 
anticipate problems and re-establish control kind of leads to decisions that will have that risk the very opposite from happening. They will cause friction, dysfunction, and actually jeopardize the mission. We don't necessarily know where Thomas's hatred of drinking comes from. It's mm. never actually dramatized over the course of Arlington or any of the other books. So we can only presume what it is about drinking that gets so under his skin. Mm. And the only thing that I can think of just off the top of my head is that the context that he might associate with it could well have been the crimes that drunken white people would have felt even more justified in committing upon their black slaves when he was still in that position of disempowerment. Mm. When a man drinks, when anyone drinks really, but when especially when men drink, they are more inclined to enact their personal selfishness mm. upon others, however mm. that takes place. I suspect whatever checks and balances, uh, no matter how few exist, can disappear. Exactly. During the edit, I'd add that the paratext for Thomas's values is most likely a reflection of Alex's own beliefs and experiences, though I won't go too deep in unpacking that, as it's not my place to speculate. Inside the world of New Century, however, I also remember the story that Mary Sampson told back in Secret Rooms, where she spoke of a drunken husband that beat her and their child, acting out the abuse he suffered at the hands of others. It may well be that Thomas might have seen something like this himself, and feared it so much as a husband and father that he ends up enacting his own anxieties regarding losing control on anyone else that might also do so. We already kind of get that he's riled, he's worried, especially as, I think, I don't remember if it was Annie or Abigail that was talking about the way snipers were at every position when everyone was getting on stage, about how important it was for this to go off without a hitch. So he's already in a state of extreme agitation, and so mm -hmm. therefore finding Raven drowning his sorrows especially when he's about to start needing to be on stage himself and therefore present a positive representation of the mission for everyone mm. to see. It's just like one more thing that frustrates him. He sees it as one more point of chaos that is about to move beyond his control, which is why right. he deputizes James as his hand in this matter. Yeah, and he, he approaches James because I think by this point, while he may not trust James, he has seen enough that he can trust James's way of thinking mm. to hold, that James is this point of logical reasoning, and therefore he can make the sort of conclusions that he needs for this. I think you hit on the key thing there. I, I absolutely think that the connection of what some white men did under the bottle to black slaves who had no means of uh, defense would 
really feed into his mistrust of drink and just this general like indignation towards it but it's the chaos element Mm -hmm. it's the fact that when you drink there is a loss of control or some of the control slips away and who in new century is more about trying to emphasize control like thomas arlington (laughs) it puts the strong relationship between thomas and president grant into Mm. sharp relief because Mm. we think not only on the historical representation of Grant as being an alcoholic, but that one conversation that the two of them had back in Arlington where Grant is very honest about his problems with alcohol and his own struggles in that regard. And obviously to Thomas, this is the most important person in the land so to speak so Mm. maintaining a good relationship with him is paramount because this is the one that can say yay or nay to any goals that he personally has but even if he does have strong feelings about those that drink that never seems to come up in Mm. even subtext relationship between the two men they seem to be good friends or at the very least, there's a strong core of respect in place there mm-hmm. where he is willing to be a voice of, of forgiveness to Grant. Here, in, ca- in the case of Raven, he brings the hammer down. And the only thing yeah. that I can think of is that it speaks to his current state of mind and to the difference in the relationship between these three men. There is something Mm. clear and strong between Thomas and Grant in a way that is not true between Thomas and Raven. He may Mm. respect what Raven is doing, but they haven't established a degree of trust at this point. So all he can see in Raven's drinking is Mm. the chaos. Of course... Those of you that know should get out your penny and your jar, because the relationship between Thomas and Grant is also likely reflective of the relationship between President Josiah Bartlett and his best friend and chief of staff, Leo McGarry. We didn't talk that much about Grant's alcoholism back when we covered Arlington, but in the story of The West Wing, we learned about Leo's history of alcoholism very early in the first season as well as the fact that Bartlett was the one Leo came to when he needed help, both before and during his path to recovery. Leo, like Grant, understood his illness, and the need to always be on guard against it, with the dangers inherent in succumbing to his addiction. The show always treated things like addiction seriously, but also with compassion. My father drank a lot. So did mine. In fact, he died from it. He came home late one night, very drunk. My mother was yelling at him. I'm not sure about what, but I heard the yelling downstairs from my bedroom. She came upstairs, and he went out to the garage and shot himself in the head. Is that why you drank and took drugs? I drank and took drugs because I'm a drug addict and an alcoholic. How long did it take you to get cured? 
I'm not cured. You don't get cured. I haven't had a drink or a pill in six and a half years, which isn't to say I won't have one tomorrow. What would happen if you did? I don't know. But probably a nightmare the likes of which both our fathers experienced, and me too. So after six and a half years, you're still not allowed to have a drink? The problem is, I don't want a drink. I want ten drinks. Are things that bad? No. Then why? Because I'm an alcoholic. I don't understand. I know. It's okay. Hardly anyone does. It's very hard to understand. The thing that specifically gets to him in this scene is drink which results in a dereliction of duty mm, mm, because mm. it's not a case of what we saw with Thomas where he offers a drink to Butler in the previous book in mm. Arlington at a moment when it's absolutely fine. Duty has been attended to and it kind of facilitates more discussion which enables more work to be achieved. Raven has a job to do and he's drinking here. And that prevents him being able to see his work through. So that's what needles Thomas, I think, is when people turn to drink rather than seeing their job through. That pisses him off. Mm -hmm. And I think that with Raven, he has no context as to why Raven decided to turn to this. The reader gets enough context so that they can kind of piece together why Raven turned to this but the fact that it is kind of abrupt that you have his admission I'm not going to publish this very next time you see him he's uh, for things to the wind I forget the phrase point is he's pissed you know what both Raven is pissed and Thomas is pissed but it's in two very different ways it's just this thing that Thomas sees this and it's like what possible explanation do you have for this this is ridiculous but despite that, Thomas, I think, I forget the exact wording, but I think he understands enough that this is probably him doing this in reaction to frustration with something. Mm -hmm. But that's not good enough for Thomas, because if you encounter resistance or you become frustrated, turning to the drink as an outlet for that, which is a very human response, but it's not a practical response in Thomas's eyes, is a failure because it's you can't encounter resistance and then not seek to try and overcome it or see it through, then you're failing what Thomas needs of you. Raven sees this and is kind of like deliberately jabbing at Thomas as well. He is kind of having a little bit of fun with him where he's like, okay, sure, I'll uh, sober up if you let the control go a bit as well and you have a drink and mm -hmm. Thomas can't do that. Especially the, not now. Especially not now. And the way that Thomas manages to get around it, where the one thing that he understands about Raven and respects, even now when his respect has really plummeted, is that he knows that in spite of everything, Raven takes pride in his work. And mm. that's a thing that like Thomas can understand because he puts a lot of his self-identity into the work he does, which means look at what people are saying about you, that you are the journalist of this. Do you trust 
anyone else to do as good a job as you know, then you know what to do. Get your shit together. I think that's a good overlap between the two characters and an effective way to resolve it where it's not dismissing Raven's emotions. He still has a right to be deeply infuriated at the hypocrisy and unsure of how to resolve whatever hypocrisy he may see within himself that he resents this government and yet he's about to participate in a mission for them despite Mm. the fact that he is only meant to be there to record it it doesn't matter he's got his own trading card he is a member of team steam for all intents and purposes and in spite of all of his personal feeling of it he still knows that if anyone's going to write about this it damn well better be me because I can make the real story come out, whereas like anyone else will just perpetuate. Like he would never want someone that would get truth so okay to go on this mission. Put mm-hmm. it that way. Yeah, pretty much. Going back over this moment and what we've seen of Raven so far, understanding what influences he is based off of, this moment feels understandable from a certain level. The drinking is Raven's version of Harry's uncertainty regarding going on the mission. Last-minute anxiety, in part because he isn't just recording and interpreting current events, but being a part of them, shaping them. He is no longer on the rooftop with a bird's-eye view. He's in the thick of it. But I also wonder if, on some level, he isn't also mad at Thomas at his daring to actually try and help this nation and its people survive its many crimes, something Toby alluded to earlier. While I suspect he knows what happened with Seth, due to reasons I can't get into right now, he still carries this bitterness with him. Like he just doesn't understand how Thomas can have any faith in humanity, even after Seth tried to shatter his illusions. Raven trying to lose himself in alcohol is very trademark Spider-Jerusalem. But so also is the need to write, to hold up the truth like a mirror for others to see. In some ways, one might think that he does what he does partly out of spite for the white men of power that remain. Before we move on, I want to get in Mm -hmm. a little bit to those scraps of parchment you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Apparently, the fire Raven was talking about that destroyed a bunch of paintings by John McStanley, that did actually occur. Again, the history coming to play. In our history, the fire happened in 1865, and therefore likely happened the same time in New Century, an accident that occurred long before even the first Wendigo outbreak in Mississippi. And I'm not going to get too much into the actual history of it, but the significance here is that these paintings done by this specific artist who made a bit of a career on depicting both the pioneers of the West as well as Native American tribes and families and hunters in their prime, that was kind of his thing. And them being (laughs) on display in the Smithsonian was like a way to 
establish his own reputation because these paintings had not been sold to the Smithsonian. They were basically on loan. And therefore, when they were destroyed in the fire, that meant that these paintings that had a significant reputation and might have seriously been worth something, they basically were destroyed and it ruined him financially as a result. They weren't like insured. To give a sense of scale, over 200 paintings, plus maps and documentation of his travel, were destroyed in the fire. Less than a dozen paintings now remain. This was the work of his life, and he died in 1872 of a heart attack, lightly brought on by stress, trying to recoup his position, his personal worth, and possibly even desiring to recreate his work. But at the same time, it's not hard to see how one can have mixed feelings about this loss. Stanley may have had genuinely sympathetic goals, trying to record the various tribes he came into contact with through his art, in order to be a proponent for their culture and existence as a part of America. But at the same time, by trying to profit from it, he is essentially commodifying the First Nations. Especially hard to swallow, since he was not one of them. This is clearly an example of what we would term in modern sensibilities as a form of cultural appropriation. He may mm. have gotten their permission to be able to paint them, but he is still trying to sell it to the audience, not specifically as a way to, or not solely as a way to be a proponent of their culture, but to potentially enrich himself, to try and do both at the same time. And the only thing mm. that I can think of is if Raven is thinking about this as he's in the Smithsonian, that this is the best potential outcome of someone trying to quote-unquote do right by his people, that they'll only do it if they can get something in return, then that is a reflection of the fact that he may feel that this society, this civilization, deserves to fall. Mm. That even as Thomas is trying to rebuild it into something better, we might ask, does Raven feel like that is a fool's errand? You've got to feel like someone in his position, and I cannot make any accurate assumptions of how someone in his position would feel but i have to suspect that someone in his position would feel like what a fucking indignity mm -hmm. that these people are talking about we need to fight because we're facing the eradication of our civilization and life as we know it in america after they inflicted more or less the same thing on an entire civilization of communities upon communities, a, a whole landscape of people. And this is a comparison that is not lost on these books, I assure you, and we shall get to that in one of the later books. And in Uncivil Outlaw, there is a moment that really goes into this. But from Raven's point of view, going on this thing to prevent the eradication of the American people, when he sees that historically We've already had an eradication of uh, the American people. It's just not who you thought 
Americans were. That I used the phrase between a rock and a hard place, and that really is just this feeling of where Raven occupies, and it's just I can feel the impotent frustration in that, and why someone who like would turn to words and journalism would feel not only that that is the best thing that they could do in response, and yet it is nowhere near enough in response. Mm. And it's it's a feeling, and it's a feeling that you can't necessarily follow through to an ending because that's the point. It's just a bubbling brew of so many things pulling at you, and you can't necessarily say this has an endpoint destination. All you can do is try to voice it and try to convey it as best you can mm. which is why for all my jokes with raven and our recent exchange on discord he is a character i really am thankful is part of team steam that mm. he is here i do want to stress that all of our conversation thus far comes from a place of us trying to extrapolate from what we are reading about how he feels about it. We don't know for certain. And over the course of this book, we are going to get to know more about Raven. And I don't necessarily remember all the details about how he feels about his past. But it also doesn't necessarily answer everything in regards to Raven. We are merely making suggestions about what the words on the page may mean. And for all we know, his anger and frustration is not necessarily indignancy for all of the First Nations that were displaced and killed at the hands of colonialist forces. Mm. But it's hard to feel like that doesn't weigh on him at all. Mm. And it's also important for us to have these conversations because mm. it is important to look at the actions of past Americans, our civilization, and what it did to people, both in a real historical sense and in this alternate history fic fictitious sense that we have to call this. Wow, okay, that's a bad turner phrase there i was about to say we have to call a spade a spade um that's a derogatory term towards black people we have to be frank no we can't be frank fuck <laughs> frank means something different you're doing great <laughs> <sighs> it's important for us to bring these subjects up as they come up but at the same time say that this is a part of our conversation we are not trying to put words into the author's mouth or into raven's mouth this is just part mm. of our own unpacking of this situation mm. and having conversations that need to happen as a critical look at this time in american history we cannot speak to the native american experience of the past clearly <laughs> For, mm -hmm. And we certainly can't speak for Native American perspective audiences who would read and engage with this and respond to it. 
but that is nevertheless no reason to not talk about it. I think mm-hmm. that you have to balance it where you have to acknowledge where your limitations, like be empathetic, acknowledge where your limitations are, but don't use that as a reason not to voice any of it at all mm-hmm. because that silence just prevents any sense of recognition. Yeah. Let's move on to some of the other parts of chapter 12. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, and of all folks of in between, we just finished like the first part of our discussion of chapter 12. We have so many more parts to talk about. Yeah. One of the topics that it takes place in many different smaller scenes are the tearful, heartwarming goodbyes between those that are going on the journey and those that are left behind. Mm. Jeremy and Donald, Annie and her sister, as we alluded to earlier, Harry with her parents, and even the heartrending moment between Sarah and Abigail. Because we know that these two will never meet again to hash out those prospective plans with Catherine. The beginning of a journey is still the end of something else. Therefore, this chapter being the final one as we transition from part one to part two is made manifest in these isolated and shared moments. What characterizes this chapter is the bittersweet beauty of the sense of sharp hope that was crystallized for one perfect moment when all our best plans for the future felt like it could be achieved and that this is the start of the right path to making that happen. The moments of anguish from Raven, unease from Thomas and reminders of the to the informed reader of the ultimate fate of two key players in the planning of this expedition They all combine to make the unambiguous point that not all will go smoothly. It will likely hurt like hell in the process. And even then, the final outcome is uncertain. And yet the hope the characters exhibit and we share in by witnessing them as they band together in this unified effort means that no matter what, this mission starts off with that gem of hope. And whatever else may come, the swelling music and earnest conversations we see in this chapter tell us that that gem will remain at the core of this venture, driving the engine of Steamheart and its crew forward. And a couple of quick notes engaging with the individual goodbyes that uh, we touched upon in both what you said here and in our notes. I love getting to see Jeremy and Donald's loving interaction that shows their intimate understanding of each other after they were denied showing any signs of it during the ball. And Annie getting to talk to her sister is the conversation between this newly risen American icon and this close connection from their roots that I wish we had had between Cap and Bucky and First Avenger rather than just cracking on with the quite commendable business of stomping Nazis and Hydra. Mm. It's another endorsement that Annie is right for the job and always has been, and that 
women are getting to be the people building this new future for people, same as anyone else. It's a moment of warranted relief and quiet, solemn celebration. Harry, being told goodbye from her parents, just kills after Arlington, doesn't it? Mm. We see Thomas acknowledge Harry being a grown woman who he respects the abilities and decision-making capabilities of, but nevertheless getting to hear Arlington exhibit his softer, intensely caring, fatherly side in this moment, it, it warms my heart. And Sarah, of course, says the best thing that... <laughs> the best thing that anyone could hope to be the last word spoken to them by a parent. Finally, what we realise here with Abigail and Sarah is the lovely match these two make as colleagues and friends. We just haven't had the chance to see that yet, and nor will we again. And what a future is denied, not only to all of us, not having the progressive and valuable decisions and plans that could have been made and actioned by a trio of women like Sarah, Abigail and Catherine, but indeed to those women themselves who would have undoubtedly drawn so much of personal value from those meetings between them for themselves. Just as we know, this is likely the last time we'll see Sarah. It is also possibly the last time we'll see Thomas as well. From Mm. here, the story is to focus on the journey rather than what's going on back in Washington. So the fact that we get many interactions with him packed into this chapter is important. His words and influence here will goad or aid or buttress our heroes going into the rest of the story. Many of those interactions are seeds for later. Some of them will flower into Steamheart itself. And some of those interactions we won't see the consequences of or even the content of till many books later. We'll obviously not get into which are which, but even as this book itself is the end of phase one, it lays the groundwork for what is to come in small and large ways. More than anything else, the final conversation between Thomas and Frank hits home with powerful emotions. The two of them formed a bond in the pages of Arlington, and this final moment of the two of them interacting shows how Thomas trusts Frank like few others, and it is the heartwarming conclusion that the previous novel could not give us. It's an ending to that dynamic that kind of just feels simple serene and precious Mm. i already stepped in front of this talking point when i went over the potential dangers of some of thomas's last orders suffice it to say i'm grateful all the same for being able to experience as much of this man and that thomas's work doesn't die with him that he defies those who wish to silence him and snuff out his power because even after his death in Arlington here he is in Steamheart a book that even if these events take place before that finale the book itself comes out 
after we have read it in terms of the release order of New Century mm. and Thomas is still laying out plans and putting his own words into effect he defies the violent silencing of the people who kill him whatever misgivings we may have of some of Thomas's enduring orders one of the last things we get to see of him being a proclamation of trust in the man who had a ways to earn it in the book Arlington is as good for the soul as any conclusion we could hope for to this relationship what ultimately turned out to be a friendship. Mm. You mentioned in somewhat of a humorous fashion in one of our recent previous conversations that you couldn't imagine hearing Thomas laugh, but Mm. hear Frank voices that this is one of the few times he's even seen Thomas smile. That's the, the bar that's being set here in terms of how vulnerable Thomas can ever manage to be. And that this is one of the few times where he has, in fact, allowed himself to trust Frank as much as he is able to trust anybody that is Mm. not himself, or Mm. alternately, Sarah. You know what's strange and fascinating about this moment is that A lot of how it's put across kind of has this strange implication, at least to me, where it's almost as if it's suggesting that Thomas has some sort of hidden meaning to this interaction, the smile and him telling Frank about it, that there's some extra dimension to this moment beyond it. And yet, having sort of read ahead multiple books by this stage I think it really just does come down to Thomas for once in all of the scenes that we see him in just being someone who actually does say what he means I mean uh, he always is direct but here he allows a moment of emotional sincerity Mm. and that's disarming and we're not quite sure how to process it because Frank isn't quite sure how to process it Mm. because this is an unusual moment which for as much as we can feel a bit disorientated afterwards it's nevertheless like I said because it's so rare it's that much more valuable to us it's very much in keeping with the rest of the chapter in general in that because Thomas smiles, because this one moment of closeness is shared between the two men, it's a part of that spark of hope that Mm. carries throughout the chapter and ends in that final moment, which we'll discuss more in detail, where Abby is proclaiming that they are doing something right, and that is when the music swells and carries us into the final moments of where we imagine Steamheart closing its hatches and the team driving off into the metaphorical sunset, at least. It's so good. (laughs) It is. Uh, I'll talk more about why it's so good when we get into it properly. Yeah, exactly. Because we we need to give that, uh, that musical culmination its full due. 
Mm. Returning to one of those isolated moments, Harry's section of this chapter is a compelling one and carries some more of that mystery that is surrounding her and her mindset and how it all plays together in terms of how her story is going to evolve into the events of this journey. In spite of everything that she has done in order to make sure she goes on this trip, the confrontations and the arguments and the eventual conclusion that Thomas should go with what his gut told him at the beginning of all of this, on the eve of their departure, she suddenly has doubts about her course. And we completely get that, that someone gets scared on the verge of getting something that they actually want. Mm. That that she suddenly wonders if she can actually do this in spite of how hard she fought to get there. The fear is understandable, but the way she gets over it is a fascinating snapshot into her brain Mm. as we hear the music that is representational of her going into her mental forest and creating these fictitious representations of the people in her life telling her things and the fact that when she goes to those woods Mm. abigail is there And this Mm. is something the story tells us. So again, we are not attempting to foreshadow anything that the story itself is not foreshadowing. The fact that Abigail is present there in this mental construct that she goes to in order to seek refuge, that detail starts to make into text what has been hinted at before just through all of these offhand moments that we keep mm-hmm. drawing attention to as a part yeah. of our recap. So it makes us fascinated and excited to see what will come of it. Just the most plain way to talk about this without trying to like engender any sort of deeper reading is that Abigail has a place in this intimate space of mm. Harry's. <laughs> and that's all we'll say about it. What What's really rewarding about this moment is that Harry is this source of all of the wondrous mechanisms that we are seeing in Washington and essentially in New Century. And this moment gives us an insight to her internal mechanisms. It's just, this is us looking at not just the cockpit and the engine of Steamheart. This is kind of us looking at the internal engine of Harry Mm. in a way that's not trying to like view her in a sort of an autopsy or like Jesus fucking Christ autopsy. She's not dead, man. No, just, but like, you know what I mean? It's just like, we're not trying to remove her from the equation. This isn't just a distant look at like, here is how this person functions. It's like, no, this is how Harry functions and it's like it's more than just who she is or what her place on the spectrum is it's about her and how she will actually make sense of her warring emotions and the 
feelings that are happening as embodied by the fact that if you're listening to this in the audio drama, you hear her, but she will be kind of speaking different thoughts into one ear channel and then the next left and right speaker. Mm. And at times they kind of... I'm sort of getting ahead of myself, but essentially in a sea of verbal exchanges and practical concerns about the broader world being voiced in this chapter, having the soothing safety of an internal space as visualized by an emotional landscape with two soothing alternating voices representing Harry's self, which come to slowly overlap with one another until they unify. That's kind of just the height of therapeutic meditation by proxy of a fictional character right there. Mm. And I will say that music that you're referring to that I was just sort of humming a little bit in the background as you were speaking, that really reminds me of some of the ambience of Portal 2 mm. and some of the soundtrack there where it's just sometimes you just hear this feeling of like science, but as a landscape. That's kind of like what the soundtrack of Portal 2 always makes me think of, is just like, imagine a setting of just science, but not in a way that's trying to make it wholly frightening. Sometimes there is moments of just serene peace within it. And this is where Harry's internal space kind of sits in a similar position to. There are two other components to the way this scene is expressed, that are of note. The effect that Toby was describing earlier regarding the audio drama, where her thoughts coming from left and right speaker and even slightly front or behind, or different voices overlapping. All of this makes me think of it like multiple Harrys having multiple experiences simultaneously. When she comes to the forest, those facets align. The voices speaking and experiencing together. And when the forest is brought up, she mentions Invisible Woodsman, which makes us think that her calm is being disturbed because the forest is being cut down. But instead, the narrative reveals to us that this is merely the wood Steamheart needs to run, and so therefore feels more like a deliberate act in her mind, as the thought of Abby allows her to focus rather than superpositioning all over. The audio drama does bring this to life in a way that words alone cannot, and yet the words are still the bones that the other effects and voice acting is built around. It's one of those moments that I love in terms of that quote from Ursula Le Guin that the writer puts into words that which cannot be put into words. <laughs> That's a great quote. Uh, yeah, yeah. Ursula Le Guin <laughs> is inspirational and... I can't necessarily engage with everything that she has to say as a part of her writing because sometimes what she's doing just feels so far above my own brain. Mm. But she comes up with these turns of phrase which are chef's kiss exquisite mm. in terms of what it can invoke mm. in the audience. And it's so appropriate for this segment with Harry because in comparison with the other characters who are more practiced with just conversing and communicating with people, even people that they are not like immediately familiar with or have a built 
past and established dynamic with them. Harry is someone who does have these relationships and she is able to communicate and has a rapport with a lot of people, but a lot of them are staying behind in Washington. Mm, mm. She is the least practiced and therefore she doesn't have as much of a freedom of opportunity in this chapter to have a conversation with someone. But that doesn't mean that she's not like wanting that, as we see from just her allowing Abigail in representation form at the very least to enter into this internal space. Mm. It's just that for the time being, we get to have an exploration of her sensibilities. The fact that just because she is a bit more, I'm struggling to think of the word, if you're a someone who is outgoing versus ingoing. Oh, uh, extrovert versus introvert. Ext- extrovert, that's it, that's it. While she is a bit more introverted on the sort of sliding scale, that doesn't... A bit, a bit more. How about <laughs> honestly? Okay, yes. But that doesn't deny her the opportunity to express and communicate with us, the audience, is a really great representation of these varying outlooks and perspectives that are all going into the mission. And yeah, it's great. That is part of what we were discussing during the whole thing with the April ball is when we were categorizing the different personalities, how some of them are similar, but how each of them distinguishes themselves, even if some of them are moving along in the same way, you know, Mm. in terms of optimist, pessimist, doer, thinker, Mm. all that. There is literally a wide spectrum of experiences going on here in terms of how they interact with the world, how they perceive the world, and how all of these nuances will play against each other, how people can have something in common and yet so fiercely conflict with each other in terms of, like, say, Annie and Abigail or Abigail and James. All of these things that make them stronger are still potentially components for conflict, especially when they're all crowded together on a steam craft together. One of my final points is that this chapter puts plain many callbacks to secret rooms for Abigail. Her inability to cry, feeling broken from Lucy's death. Her friendship with Tabitha Chorley and the promise of them reunited as one of those uh, future chapters to catch up on. Excitement at the possibility of her and us seeing Catherine Holloway again. Maybe as a part of the journey, maybe not. We don't know yet. Well, okay, you and I know, but for the purposes of you, the audience that we are speaking to now, I am not going to say where we are going to see Catherine Holloway again. And on top of that, when we get into the fake story written for Truth's propaganda, that even reminds us of Tommy Sweeney that wanted a kiss from her back when she was just a young woman. While Steamheart is very much an ensemble story, it's hard not to feel that Abigail looms largest, in my own mind at least. Her struggles in her interactions with the world 
and the people in it, as well as inside herself. To some extent, she will always be, in my mind, the keystone of the heroes of this world. Secret Rooms emphasizes the aspects of Abigail and James that makes them a pair. It doesn't diminish Abigail's strengths or overly exaggerate her weaknesses in order to play up James as a hero in his own right, but it does showcase why they work as well as they do as characters that have this invisible thread between them and why they are perfect shared recipients of the Orb's endowment. But here in Steamheart, you're absolutely right in saying that Abigail is coming more and more into her own as an active spear point of this world and the emotional core of New Century. It's something that even James is kind of feeling in mm. the discrepancy between them in terms of Abigail is much more readily acclimatizing and making use of the abilities that the orb has endowed her with, whereas James is really struggling with that. It mm. kind of means that she is, like, as much as this is kind of more just James's own feelings on it, you can nevertheless understand that there is this feeling that she is pulling ahead a bit more. We need and, to get back to that at some point, mm, because that's an intriguing thing that you just said there. Yeah. And the idea of Abigail moving ahead while James is lagging behind in certain ways. Mm. Let's continue to follow that thread as this story I, plays out. There's multiple moments coming up that I know that that will be relevant. So mm -hmm. we shan't forget that, I don't okay, think. Okay, great. Again, that doesn't mean that her flaws are going away in order to paint this impression that she is kind of raising in prominence. Mm. In fact, as Abigail's convictions grow as she advances in, into Steamheart, I'd say that her strengths harden with resolve just as her flaws grow more complex, having moved past some of the initial faults that she and the audience have assessed and reflected on across books with her first judgment of Carl being misplaced and now moving into new stratospheres of decision-making which extend beyond the immediate survival of her and her group and now instead encompass political circles, the fate of the population and the long-term interaction between worlds. She is placed into bigger situations and she will rise to meet them the best she can on her terms for good and for complicated. <laughs> I was wondering how you were going to dichotomize that there then. Yeah, <laughs> if there's one thing that I can appreciate when we talk about characters' strengths and weaknesses, the best occasions of showing growth of characters is ideally to not have them run up too much against the same problems again and again. Abigail is a great example of someone that has learned from her past mistakes. And so therefore, as she goes on into the future of this overarching narrative, she will get to make all kinds of new mistakes instead of <laughs> repeating the old ones. And that's what growing up is all about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> One of my favorite quotes from my father is that we learn more from our failures than we do our successes. 
as aphoristic wisdom goes, that's still a good one. That's a very good point, that you never want your characters to stagnate by feeling as if they're just running into the same problem again and again. A counter to that can be the idea of either you have them encounter new difficulties and challenges that they need to work on and overcome, or, and this is something that I argue is applicable to Abigail, you take those initial uh, faults and flaws and while you can resolve it on the first tier of troubles that she encounters, let's see what happens when you complicate it, when you expand it and mm -hmm. say, well, we see how it works when the problem just encounters her, her teammates and a couple of bandits on the road. Okay, that's quite a closed off set of like circumstances now she's a major figurehead in a government mission that's going across country stakes are getting a bit bigger that changes the dynamic so will she react accordingly mm. it's not that you can't make good storytelling out of someone running into the same problems again and again, but it always mm. has a bit of a different Both feel Jack to Wilson. it. God damn it, you were right there in my fucking head, because that's exactly where I was going <laughs> to go with that. <laughs> Bojack Horseman is a sympathetic character, but the fact that he keeps making the same mistakes is what makes him a tragic figure rather than a heroic one. That he always, mm. unfortunately, backslides as a result of screwing up rather than doubling down and working harder to do better and everything like that. Mm. That's the unfortunate and... arc of that story. And it's fine for the story that they're trying to tell, but when everything else is going to shit like this, we need to have people that are not going to give in to their weaknesses like that. I think the differences in settings actually does sort of show how you can get away with this because in Bojack Horseman's case, it's a celebrity who has all of this like comfortable structures set around them where they really can just keep making the same mistakes and nothing is going to really challenge Bojack to change other than himself. Right, because he's, he's rich and so therefore the mistakes that he makes are theoretically solved with money or his mm. or, or his people celebrity. will make excuses for him yeah, yeah exactly this is the corollary to my earlier point if someone doesn't fail or if the consequences are easily negated then they don't learn anything or have the impetus to improve yeah and a new century there's a preciousness to like the time and reach and resources and no one in the reunified states really has this ironclad like defense around them really like you mm -hmm. everyone is in a tenuous place mm -hmm. which means that they can't really afford to keep making the same mistakes because if they do then sooner or later the consequence of that will be their own death like, or or that's the kind deaths of, of other people you know like yeah. the whole thing that happened back in new athens where what's going to happen to those people we don't know yeah, okay, yes, technically we do know, but for the purposes of the story so far, we don't know what the consequences we, were of 
Abigail's failure in that regard. Greg, this is Schrodinger's podcast because we are <laughs> saying that we are both the reader who is finding out about this as they read along. And we are also that person who goes, I know, I've read ahead. I've read all the books. <laughs> what is this voice? <laughs> uh, let's let's uh, let's not bring that character back into future conversations. <laughs> I can tell that plummeted. <laughs> and that's it for this week. But in about one more week, we'll finally get to the end of part one. With let's see, it took us two months to get through one quarter of the book, which means it should only take us another six months to finish. That's not too bad, really. Of course, Alex hears these plans and laughs. We'll see how it actually turns out. In the meantime, we'll see you next week for discussion on music and chapter 13 on another trip through the wind door. <laughs>